Hello, welcome back, and thank you for listening again to the History of the Congo. Episode 3, Two Civilizations Meet Last time we left the kingdom, sitting at the centre of a commonwealth of provinces ruled by the Mani Congo, Lukeni Luanini. It had a population of 300,000, and the capital city, Mbanza Congo, housed more than 30,000 people, in what is now northern Ancola some 450 kilometres inland from the Central African Atlantic coast. During the early 15th century, the kingdom continued to expand, conquering further south into present-day Angola, where the Angola peoples lived, from which the modern country gets its name. With help from people from the Mbeti provinces, the Mpango and Mpundi were conquered, and governors were installed who would take direct orders from the Mani Congo. This was a period of prosperity for the kingdom, and by the end of the century the population has grown to a sizeable 2 to 3 million people, although the wide discrepancy here reveals the obscurity of the mists of time. In 1482, King Nzinga at Nkuru sat on the throne, presumably still with the trappings of state being the animal baby head belt and the zebra tail whip. It would likely have been an ordinary day, managing disputes and running the kingdom, when extraordinary news came through hurriedly from the coast. We will never know his reaction, or the reaction of his court when this news came, but we have a hint from tradition of oral history passed through the ages. Whatever that reaction was, it was not going to be overstated in terms of the future impact. 20th century oral historian Makunzu Penzi of the Pendi people recites this tale. Our fathers were living comfortably. They had cattle and crops. They had salt marshes and banana trees. Suddenly, they saw a big boat rising out of the great ocean. The boat had wings of all white, sparkling like knives. White men came out of the water and spoke words which no one understood. Our ancestors took fright. They said that these were Vumbi, spirits from the dead. They pushed them back into the ocean with volleys of arrows, but the Vumbi spat fire with a noise of thunder. Many men were killed. Our ancestors fled. The chiefs and the wise men said these Vumbi were the former possessors of the land. Frightening stuff, even when recited 400 years later. By rising out of the water, they literally meant rising from the depths of the ocean. With no experience of watching ships, as they sailed towards them over the horizon, these were seen to be coming directly from the underworld. Added to this, the people believed that a person's skin turned the colour of chalk when they passed to the land of the dead. The first white man that the people had ever seen removed any doubt in the coastal people's minds. This was an epoch-shattering event, and the people raced to tell the king. You will have guessed it, of course, but these were the Portuguese, at the very beginnings of their push down Africa, which ultimately led to the first circumnavigation of the world. The astonishment of this meeting, although perhaps not the horror, was felt on both sides. Diego Cao had set off from Belém in Lisbon in 1482 as the admiral of a fleet with three caravels. He was leading brave men seeking riches who were literally travelling into the unknown on expeditions taking them away from home for years at a time. He came from a land where the expulsion of the Arabs from the Iberian Peninsula was still happening. The Umayyad Caliphate was still settled, albeit precariously, in the beautiful Alhambra. There was no knowledge of Africa this far south, and the maps were still filled with images of dog heads, literally people with dogs' heads, and fantastical sea creatures. 
They had met other tribes in Guinea and along the more northern reaches of the African Atlantic coast. But what the Portuguese were really hoping to find was the fabled Christian kingdom of Prester John, who, somewhat improbably, described himself in 12th century letters as the Lord of Lords, surpassing all the kings of the entire world in wealth, virtue and power. His was a land where milk and honey flowed freely, and even though he didn't miraculously arrive to save the Crusaders, as Saladin pushed them from the Middle East, the kingdom was seen as real, and one that needed to be found. Whoever made that ruse up could not have imagined how successful and how long-lived it would be. Cow's hopes must have been raised when 200 miles off the coast, the seawater turned brown with silt, and the water was fresh to taste. This was the outpouring of the second most voluminous river in the world, the River Congo, and it was the first time that any European had seen it. Being 220 metres deep at its deepest point, and discharging up to 75,000 cubic metres per second, the river could still flow continuously, even this far offshore. It carried tree trunks and other debris that it had picked up along the way. It could fill 1,800 Olympic swimming pools every minute at this rate. The Portuguese were here to explore, and they needed to determine where this flow came from. Given the alarming events narrated above, the meeting was more constructive than it might have been. The Portuguese were eventually met as people, and the king had a great interest in using their weapons as an aid to helping with the provincial war that the kingdom was currently fighting. Trade took place, and in return for textiles and metalware, the king gave leopard skins, parrots and copper anklets. Importantly, the king was open-minded and listened to the religious fervour of the newcomers. He was interested in their religion and he tentatively started to embrace Catholicism. A number of Congolese left the kingdom and travelled with the ships back to Portugal. We can only imagine the mix of fear and excitement that these individuals had. They were sent by the king to learn more of the Portuguese, and to gain a deeper understanding of this new religion that the newcomers seemed to follow so fervently. This would be the start of a state conversion, led by the nobles of the kingdom. The Kingdom of the Congo was soon to be going to war with his enemies, carrying a papal banner with the sign of the cross. Today, in the Portuguese National Institute of Geography, there is a tangible link to this meeting, even though it was held back in 1482. The Institute has collected all of the padrão, or stone crosses, that they left as markers on their discoveries. The cross left at the end of the River Zaire, as it was then known, is the first placed by the European discoveries and although it's obviously had a hard life, it's still there to be seen. If you are ever in Lisbon, look up the Institute. It's not commercialised, but it has an amazing collection of artefacts from history, and a great bar and restaurant. There are a few pictures on thehistoryofthecongo.com. In the next few years, the Kingdom of the Congo made sporadic receptions for the Portuguese, as the explorers stopped off on their continued explorations and conquests eventually around the southern tip of Africa and beyond. Nine years after the first meeting, however, in 1491, they came back permanently. This moment sent shockwaves through time to the present day. This was the first time that Europeans settled permanently in sub-Saharan Africa. The settlers were ostensibly Jesuit missionaries and emissaries, but by this time thoughts of Prester John were gone, and many were there to make money. The kingdom welcomed these visitors, and they were allowed to build churches to help spread the word of God, the ruins of which, as we have talked about, can still be visited in Mbanza Congo today. 
Amongst the population seeing these strange new arrivals was a young chief called Nzinga Mbemba, who embraced Catholicism and the Portuguese language so as to become fluent and armed with a detailed knowledge of Catholicism. His conversion was so all-encompassing that he added Afonso to his name. He so impressed one missionary that in a letter back to the Portuguese king, the missionary wrote he, knows better than us the prophets, the gospel of our saviour Jesus Christ, all the lives of the saints and all that has to do with our holy mother church. If your highness saw him, you would be astonished. He speaks so well and with such assurance that it always seems to me that the Holy Spirit speaks through his mouth. My lord, he does nothing but study. Many times he falls asleep over his books and many times he forgets to eat or drink because he is speaking of our saviour. Clearly Christianity has greatly impacted some in Congolese society and those in power, to some degree influenced by the Portuguese visitors I am sure, were impressed. He was referred to as the Apostle of Congo by European contemporaries. In 1506, Nzenga Mbemba succeeded his father as the Mani Congo and renamed himself King Alfonso I. He was to become the most famous of all Congo kings and 300 years later, it was said that all Congolese could name three monarchs, the current king, his predecessor and Alfonso I. By this time, the Kingdom of the Congo was known on the world stage. King Alfonso's reputation was international. He was known to the Pope and was mentioned in the Medici's education of the 16th century as a Christian leader. But all was not well in the kingdom. The Commonwealth states had started to trade with the Portuguese independently. The king's power to receive tribute and distribute wealth was waning. Catholicism also meant that the alternative beliefs had broken the inner power dynamics on which the kingdom had run. Afonso was a smart leader and tried to resist this as much as he could. He was a moderniser, but all aspects of the newcomer's rules were not embraced wholeheartedly. He was keen for the kingdom to learn new woodworking and metalworking technologies, and he was a strong advocate for literacy but he strongly rebutted Portuguese demands for the implementation of the Portuguese legal system and court protocol. What he really wanted for the kingdom and his people was what he perceived to be in their best interests. In contrast to many simplified narratives, the kingdom was not a primitive people who wanted to wholly change their way of life to align with these new visitors who showed up some 20 years ago. I am sure if we could go back in time we would hear comprehensive discussions as how best to manage the political dynamic which had come with the visitor's arrival. One difficulty was that despite the embrace of Catholicism, many of the missionaries now were not quite so holy. They had had their heads turned by the eternal temptation, wealth. Gone were the dreams of Prester John. The Portuguese were now truly in global ascendancy, and they had set up trade centres along the west and east coast of Africa, and had subdued the Caliphates of Calicut, with power now all the way to Malay in the Far East. They were more confident in their abilities, and avarice had started to replace the religious fervour in many of them. There was little to stop them. As so often in history, the thirst for money and the disparity in the two sides' trading positions led to huge social reforms. The Portuguese did not accept carry shells as currency. What was previously the basis of a transactional trading system over most of Central Africa disappeared very suddenly. When the Congolese wanted to purchase Portuguese goods, read guns, 
the quality of the local textiles and metalwork was inferior to that which the Portuguese already had. The trade goods which the artisans of the Congo were producing were now much reduced in value. Skilled apprentices, teachers and students, as well as the people collecting the raw materials for these products, found that the time they had spent establishing these skills and their positions in the economic structure were now much diminished in value. But the kingdom did have something the Portuguese wanted. The sugar plantations in Madeira and Brazil were growing fast, and they needed help to work these efficiently. What they really wanted was manpower. Now this is an amateur podcast, and this is an extremely delicate topic, so I will tread lightly here. At this time, slavery was common throughout the world, and we have records of Venetians and the Scandinavians and Vikings making huge profits from the sale of slaves to the willing purchasers. And in this, the Kingdom of the Congo was no exception. The appalling difference, though, was that the trading imbalance and the desire of goods from one side and slaves from the other led to such a rapid escalation in slavery that the social order was breaking down. People were now being taken indiscriminately by local gangs, and King Afonso saw tens of thousands of citizens taken into slavery and disappearing from the kingdom. Almost uniquely from this time, we can hear a direct African voice speaking to us. King Afonso was trying to save his kingdom and his people and in 1526 wrote to the Portuguese king directly, once in July and once again in October. These are his words. Sir, your highness should know how our kingdom is being lost in so many ways that it is convenient to provide for the necessary remedy, since this is caused by the excessive freedom given to your agents and officials and to the men and merchants who are allowed to come to this kingdom to set up shops with goods and many things which have been prohibited by us, and which they spread through our kingdoms and domains, in such abundance that many of our vassals, whom we had in obedience, do not comply, because they have the things in greater abundance than we have ourselves. And it was with these things that we had them content and subjected under our vassalage and jurisdiction. So it is doing great harm, not only to the service of God, but to the security and peace of our kingdoms and state as well. In summary, the Portuguese were now going to the Commonwealth States directly, meaning they had no need to respect the old kingdom. What they wanted was Portuguese goods and guns, and they didn't need to get these from the king. But there was a huge human cost. Again, we return to King Afonso. And we cannot reckon how great the damage is, since the mentioned merchants are taking every day our natives, sons of the land, and the sons of our noblemen and vassals and our relatives because the thieves and men of bad conscience grab them, wishing to have the things and wares of this kingdom which they are ambitious of. They grab them and get them to be sold. And so great, sir, is the corruption and licentiousness that our country is being completely depopulated, and your highness should not agree to this, nor accept it as it is in your service. And to avoid it, we need from those, your kingdoms, no more than some priests and a few people to teach in schools and in no goods except wine and flour for the Holy Sacrament. That is why we beg of your highness to help and assist us in this matter, commanding your factors that they should not send here either merchants or wares, because it is our will that in these kingdoms there should not be any trade of slaves, nor outlets for them. Concerning what is referred to above again, we beg of your highness to agree with it, since otherwise we cannot remedy such an obvious damage. Pray that our Lord in his mercy to have your highness under his guard and let you do forever the things of his service 
I kiss your hand many times. These are the letters of an empathetic and learned man, imploring a king whom he saw as his equal, observing the same religion as was apparently so important for help. His people were literally being grabbed in exchange for trinkets, so that the kingdom was depopulating. It is a sad, sad historic episode, and we should all solemnly absorb his words. This is a history podcast, not a campaign but we should be under no illusions how many people participated in these heinous acts. Again, we turn to the letters. Moreover, sir, in our kingdoms there is another great inconvenience which is of little service to God, and it is this that many people, keenly desirous as they are of your wares and things of your kingdoms, which are brought here by your people, and in order to satisfy their voracious appetite, seize many of our people, freed and exempt men, and very often it happens that they kidnap even noblemen and the sons of noblemen and our relatives and take them to be sold to the white men who are in our kingdoms. And for this purpose they have concealed them and others are brought during the night so that they cannot be recognised. As soon as they are taken by the traders they are immediately ironed and branded by fire. Unscrupulous gangs were taking anyone with immunity. No rank or authority was recognised, and they just had to get them to the traders to receive payment. Of course it was known where the slave traders were, but the kingdom did not want to go against these traders who said that they had paid legitimately for the people. The Portuguese king received these letters, and replied saying he would help, but in reality this was lip service. King Afonso even went so far as to send a mission to the Pope for help, as he knew that his religious standing was good but in an act of shameless deceit these men were held in Lisbon so as never to have their story heard. The greed of all these individuals was to set the kingdom on a fruitless path. The welcome and conversion had been to no avail against the chance to make money. I have read an alternative story that the Vatican did receive letters rather than envoys, but that these were ignored. Either way, religion here appears to have been a matter of choice in its application. Well, that's enough for me. This is a sad and gruelling episode, and I'm mentally exhausted through anger and sadness reading through these events. The DRC didn't get to where it is today without history, and it has a lot of negatives, but we should continue our journey. Next time we shall look at how the kingdom struggled against this, including a warrior queen leading a 30 years war, and a young woman leading protests in the 17th century. So until next time, thanks for listening, and safe travels.